When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Friday morning, the 1st of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Will we be plunged into darkness if data centres use up 30% of the country's electricity by 2030? What if they use 70% of our electricity by then? Actually, what about the electricity crisis this year, never mind a decade off already, there have been alerts, a risk to the lights going out. So will there be power cuts? Could there be blackouts? The answer is no, definitely not. Well, maybe, hopefully not. You see, we're confident that it won't happen, but yes, there is a risk that it will happen. I mean, no one can say that there won't be power cuts. So that's yes, no, maybe, maybe not. Confident it won't happen, but there is a risk that it could happen. And work can be done. Power stations need to be reopened, reopened now. That work needs to happen now. And then maybe uh, there won't be a problem. No, definitely there won't be a problem. I think that's uh, probably where we're at at the moment, at least. That's my understanding. Uh, Maybe it's uh, my misunderstanding of where we're at at the moment. Sean Defoe is our political correspondent and he's on the line. Good morning to you, Sean, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Are you any clearer than I am on whether there's a risk to our power supply? Uh, you've about summed up there, all right, and all the different uh, different statements that have been made. Look, there is a risk to our power supply. Uh, the grid is going to be stretched, not just this year, but over the next four or five years, according to Minister Eamon Ryan. So there is going to be pressures on. And, of course, you're not going to get a politician who will say uh, categorically there's not going to be blackouts, because, there, of course, there are blackouts every year for all sorts of reasons anyway. So then you, you create a political hostage to fortune, whereby if there is a blackout, actually, for nothing to do with the fact that there's not enough power, but for some other reason, uh, you're going to have people blaming and say, well, look, you lied, my house is in darkness. Um, but in terms of the more, with those widespread blackouts or brownouts, as, as Leo Breiker keeps mentioning, which is basically where there is a, a sort of a stretch on the grid, but it doesn't go entirely out. You might see your, your lights flickering, for example, if, if something like that was to happen on the grid, is what I'm told. Um, they can't be ruled out, but he doesn't believe they're going to happen. And there's a number of things factoring mm. in uh, to this that you kind of alluded to. So one is the fact that two gas-powered stations are currently down. They've been down for quite a while, and it's taken a long time to get the parts 
to fix them. Eamon Ryan and the Tornister both say that they should be fixed in time for November. So in time for, I suppose, uh, the real biting winter when we are all using more electricity and we are all having more stuff on, we've more lights on, we're trying to heat the home a little bit more because it is more generally cold out. Mm. If those are back up and running, we should be okay, but there is still going to be a bit of a stretch um, on the grid as it is. So there is, as you say, they can't rule it out. Uh, A lot of people I'm talking to say they think it is probably unlikely, but the grid is very much stretched. And the reports that we've had this week, particularly from AirGrid Warren, that at the moment and over through the next few years, demand is going to outstrip supply. Okay, Uh, the candlestick makers are are probably rubbing their hands together, Uh, but uh, don't count your chickens yet, uh, maybe the message to them. Uh, And you said a brownout. Just explain to me again, you said something about lights flickering. Would that be that the power supply would be reduced? And let's say you have an electric shower, that the pressure would be next to nothing. Maybe the shower wouldn't work, but the lights would be on. Exactly, yeah. It's it's something in that range whereby, honestly, I've never experienced a brownout. I don't actually know anyone who has, but uh, Leo Varadkar says that they are, in fact, seeing it as when the grid doesn't, your your lights don't snap Mm. off and suddenly everything is gone. Uh, But the power is a little bit weak, as you say, the electric shower might not quite work. You might not, the lights would be flickering a little bit. Uh, You would be uh, essentially sort of 50-50 on whether things are going to work in your home, which is is less than ideal. Uh, it has to be said when you're dealing with anything. Mm-hmm. So that is the, the gist of what a, a brownout is and uh, hopefully we don't ever find out what they actually look like in person. Okay. If, if I sounded confused at the start of the programme, uh, it was because I heard the Tonisha speaker about this yesterday and he said a number of things. Uh, all of them made sense, but some of them seemed to contradict some of the other things uh, that he, he was saying about the risk to the power supply. And maybe we can hear some of the things uh, that Leo Vratker t- said to the doll yesterday. Uh, and here's uh, the first clip that we listen to now. Uh, he's talking about the prospect of blackouts or brownouts. I am confident that we will avoid blackouts and brownouts this winter, um, but nobody can guarantee it for certain because uh, there are certain factors um, that are outside of our control. Um, I think it's important to point out that the peat power stations in the Midlands um, were not closed as, con- as a consequence of a government decision, nor were they closed at the best of the Green Party. Uh, they were closed because of planning and legal issues. Uh, and I think if people have that perception that the government decides to close those plants, uh, that is factually incorrect. And I think it's important that everyone here should, um, uh, should acknowledge that. Okay, right. Uh He's confident, uh, and uh, I think we're all happy to hear that the Tallinnshire is confident that this won't happen. Uh, but I don't remember when uh, any politician has been saying we can't guarantee the power supply. Uh, not since the 1970s, uh, when the ESB was uh, going from one strike to the next strike, and power cuts uh, were almost every day, or they were certainly commonplace. Uh, it's a bizarre thing to say. I mean, you wouldn't have heard that a year ago, Sean. No, well, it's this kind of thing that we you kind of look at it and go, really? Are we, yeah. are we actually at this sort of situation? Uh, I didn't think things were this bad, but evidently they are. And it's interesting you say, like that clip um, you were playing yesterday, I was listening to leaders and left in something of a journalistic dilemma at the end of it because I had two effective headlines. One is the Tornister <laughs> is confident there won't be uh, blackouts, and the other was the Tornister can't rule out that there won't be blackouts. Yeah. You're kind of left as a journalist with the choice of going, Geez, you know, where do I go with this? <laughs> yes, no, um, maybe, definitely not. <laughs> well, exactly. Like Both both yeah. are equally true. He said yeah. both things, and yet they're very different connotations and very different way that you actually present it, of course. Right. So, look, it's mm. very difficult. And Mary McDonald came back at him after that, all mm. that back and forth in leaders and said, uh, had a real go and a really strong go with the government. She says, right, you can't guarantee everyone in the country is going to have a roof over their heads. You can't guarantee that people are going to be able to get health care in 
a reasonable time and fashion with the different waiting lists going on. And now you can't guarantee that people are going to be able to keep the lights on over the winter. Uh, all hallmarks of a government that, that is not doing particularly well. You can have some sympathy in this instance in that uh, yeah. a lot of it is out of control. They didn't think those two power plants were going to go down. To have two of them go offline at the same time is quite bad luck and it, you know there isn't a massive precedence for it but at the same time there should have been much longer term planning here to ensure that even when those are back on we're in a very good place the government will also po- point to and has this year that it's been a particularly bad year for onshore wind generation there hasn't been a lot of wind around and so far the few wind farms yeah. that we have mm aren't actually generating all that much power. But then again, it comes back to the, well, we have been very, very slow to generate offshore wind farms, and offshore wind farms are much more reliable when it comes to to producing energy. And indeed, the reports that were out this week saying, realistically, by the time all the planning hoops are jumped through, by the time all the consultations are done, it's going to be 2028 before we can reliably use offshore wind as a source of a, a good, reliable source of power for the grid. So a lot of questions to be addressed yeah. over the coming months and years. Indeed. Uh, we might hear a little bit more about that uh, situation with the wind farms in a minute, uh, but uh, let's uh, just take stock for a minute. Uh, the Tánaiste is confident we're not going to have power cuts, uh, but he can't guarantee it. Uh, and the government, of course, has been receiving advice. The government has been advised both by the uh, utility regulator and AirGrid um, that they have identified spe- specific challenges uh, to ensuring continued electricity security of supply uh, which they're currently in the process of addressing. Uh, this is very much affected by the fact that there are two major gas-fired power stations in Ireland that are out of action. Uh, one in Huntstown in my own constituency and another in Cork and we need to get those back online um, in October uh, and November um, and we're confident that that's going to be the case uh, but we can't guarantee it absolutely. Right. Uh, I'm sure they can't guarantee it absolutely uh, unless uh, they were almost there because this is the 1st of October uh, and it sounds uh, to me as though it's a lot easier said than done to reopen power stations, Sean. Yeah, look, I won't pretend for a second to be an expert no. on the, the, mm. the mm. workings of power stations, but the fact that they have been offline for so long and it has taken so long to get the parts to actually uh, fix them and bring them back online will tell you that there is complications. And of course, there's global supply chain issues playing into that as well, which is a, a wider picture because when it comes to energy, we're not living in this isolated bubble of Ireland. We are also dealing with global pressures and that's kind of a different piece, but you're seeing that reflected in, in prices. Mm. So it is a difficult thing and it's something that obviously Leo Branker doesn't want to give a cast iron guarantee on when he actually can't. But we do need those power plants online. And realistically, I think as well um, that the the powers that be do need to be looking at other plants. The the Mm. thing that has sort of come out of this for me this week that is somewhat worrying from a climate point of view is that we are nowhere near uh, sustainable on uh, renewable energy Mm. and we won't be for a long time. So any ideas of phasing out money points, for example, uh, or some of the other big polluting plants Mm. that had been in train are going to be delayed. I think there's very little doubt over that. That obviously has a different impact on uh, climate, but you are going to have to keep the lights on. So this process of getting to 2030, of getting to uh, carbon neutrality and of getting all the renewables up and running, um, it's much more complicated than even the complicated picture we thought. Is it that if the power plants in Hunstown and Cork aren't reopened soon enough, we are going to have blackouts? Uh, And if they are open soon enough, well, we might have blackouts, but most likely not. I think that's that's probably a relatively fair assumption. Uh, if they aren't back up and running, we are going to be in trouble 
for the winter. I don't know the actual figures in terms of uh, how we mm. could do without them, but the fact that there are already pressures on the grid, that there's been a number of amber warnings to the summer and two mm. months that have been pretty warm and pretty light when there is much less demand than there's going to be in November or December. We've already seen those amber warnings. Something the government seems pretty confident on, and people have been speaking to behind the scenes, is that those blackouts and brownouts can be avoided, but it's going to have to be really carefully managed with businesses. So they, they can't have arrangements with particularly some of the larger businesses, mm. larger production plants, where they can get them to scale back at certain times, which reduces a lot of pressure on the grid because obviously they would use a huge amount of electricity. So that might involve a business delaying production or, or going out of production for an hour or two at a particularly peak time in order to keep the lights on in residential areas. But to me, that sounds like quite a complicated solution to this and it sounds like one where you are very much relying on a lot of businesses to uh, to, com- to comply basically mm. with the government's wishes with no power of compatibility over them. So it is far from ideal but a number of people I've spoken to within the, the Department of the, of the Environment have said that is a solution they think will be operated and indeed Patanish said it in Doyle yesterday they're going to work with businesses to make sure that at those peak mm. power demands if they need to be scaled back they can be scaled back. And that calls into question the data centres because they're using up uh, what is it about 11 or 12 percent of uh, the electricity that's produced in the country at the moment there's this prospect of it going uh, to 28 percent possibly as high as 70 percent by the end of uh, the decade the demand already uh, has increased according to what uh, the Tonish uh, said yesterday. And we'll hear just one more clip uh, from Leo Vratker, Sean, if we can, uh, going back to this issue of wind uh, and the risk to the supply. Um, there is a short-term immediate risk to the supply of electricity, um, and that is uh, being caused by a number of factors, including those two power stations that are closed, um, wind not blowing as much as was anticipated, um, uh, and also problems with the interconnector between uh, the UK uh, and uh, and Ireland. The wind not blowing as much as anticipated. <laughs> I didn't know what to think when I heard that line. <laughs> is that a, a, a real argument, or what? What, what is the Donish is saying? Well, it, it is actually real. Real, is it? Ridiculous, but it but it is actually a real thing, and it's been a problem Europe-wide. It's a problem factoring into the the energy price crunch that we are all seeing. Is that it just has been really not particularly windy year? Yeah, as as, as mad as it sounds. Yeah, um, and this is one of the, obviously one of the risks with wind generation is that sometimes the wind doesn't blow and this has been a really a real outlier of a year where the wind hasn't blown uh, for a huge amount of the year or certainly to the, to the scale that it usually does. That goes back to what I was saying earlier about mm. offshore because apparently offshore wind is, is a lot more reliable and so that's really where probably the focus needs to be but no that, that isn't a makey uppy thing, it's something that is affecting other European countries as well. Okay, it does sound bizarre nonetheless. Sean thank you very much though for talking us through that, uh, much appreciated as always that's our political correspondent Sean Defoe Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, uh, Care Plus Pharmacy has uh, carried out a, a survey uh, which has uh, resulted in uh, shocking news, really, that 61% of women in this country do not regularly check their breasts for lumps or abnormalities. Uh, the survey has been carried out in conjunction with Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Uh, and it is uh, somewhat shocking uh, because it is something that all women in particular should be aware of. Uh, because, as you know, prevention is uh, far better than cure and early detection of uh, some abnormality could 
prevent uh, a, a very long and very serious uh, disease in some circumstances and uh, some tragic outcomes uh, as a result of developing breast cancer. Of course, women aged 50 to 69 uh, have their breast checked for them under the National Breast Check Programme. Uh, but there's a call, as you heard yesterday, from Fianna Fáil Senator Erin McGreehan and Councillor Theresa Cossolo uh, to reduce uh, the age from 50 to 40. And Councillor Theresa Cossolo joins us now. Uh, Theresa, as you probably heard yesterday, is a, a breast cancer survivor herself and founder of Best Friends, which is a support page for people with breast cancer and their family and friends. And a very good morning to you, Theresa, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme at this morning. Uh, I take it the reason why it's set at 50, uh, from 50 to 69, is that that is probably the most at-risk group, is it? Um, the 50 to 69-year-olds uh, account for 34% of... 3,700 women are diagnosed with breast cancer each year, so they account for uh, 34% of that age group, uh, the other 66% of people are between 69 onwards or um, 50 and below. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's, I suppose like with screening, screening is uh, taking healthy people. It's not diagnostic mm. and it's, you know, checking them. And some people do get that they find that they do have um, breast cancer abnormalities when they are screened. Mm-hmm. So it's more a preventative measure. Tell us a, a little bit about your own story, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, I think you were 36 years of age uh, with a five-year-old boy when uh, you were given uh, the news that every woman dreads. Yeah, Michael, I was so breast, unbreast aware. Um, I was 36. I had um, My son was five at the time. Um, it, coming up to his sixth birthday, I was cruising through life. Thought I was invincible. I had no education on breast health. I didn't ever check my breasts. And I just didn't think cancer was ever going to knock on my door. Mm. And I found a lump by chance when I was in the shower. And I had the good sense to go straight to the GP, who wasn't overly concerned, but erred on the side of caution and referred me on to St. James's. When I went to St. James's for my appointment, uh, Dr. Terry Boyle was the consultant. And when he came into the room and looked at my breasts, he got me to hold my arms over my head, he shook his head and he said, this isn't good. When he checked me, I had three tumours, not just the one I found. And this this always stuck with me because, of, you know, when something terrible happens to you in life, you always reflect back on how could things have worked out differently, okay? So I embarked on a, a treatment plan of chemotherapy, radiotherapy, I had my breast removed, I had a reconstructive using the muscle from my back that then went on for further reconstruction. So I I was in a situation where my breast cancer was stage three and, you know, it was it had a personality, I was told. So there was no time to freeze eggs or think about anything for the future. It was get you in, get your chemo done quickly and let's fight this to the best of our ability. What, what, what do you mean it so, had a personality? Does that mean that it's growing? I was I told it had a personality it was starting to move around yeah, so it okay. was, you know, there was three tumours from yeah. one, you know, that kind yeah, of yeah, and yeah. The, the, the indentation was very severe. If I had have been in any way breast aware, I would have picked up on that earlier. Mm. And that's something that stuck with me. That was that was back in 2013 and from then I've always screamed to younger girls to check themselves, mm. you know, be breast aware. And I guess that's what's put a fire in my belly because I don't want anybody going through what I 
I went through if it can be preventable at all. Mm. I, you know, I wanted to catch it much earlier. And I don't want to hear of girls whose breast cancer has become metastasized because they didn't check themselves. They, you know, they, they didn't get to it on time. And you said what you said at the beginning of this was early detection. You know, saves lives. Prevention mm. is better than cure. Mm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's no joke. Uh, it, I, I think you're fully recovered and back to full health, aren't you, Teresa? Yeah, thank yeah, God I'm fully God, recovered. Yeah. And it's, it, you know, it's, mm. it's, it's, a, it's a difficult journey. Mm. But, you know, I think it's made me a better person, believe mm. it or not. And it's definitely given me a purpose. And I guess, you know, until something knocks at your door, you, you'll mm. never really fully understand the effect of it. Some people think, now. October being Breast Cancer yeah. Awareness Month, you'll see lots of pink and fluffy, right? And yet, it's brilliant for raising awareness. Okay. But there's a very, very mm. serious side to this mm. where, you know, people die from this illness. Mm. People suffer when they're going through it. People will always put on a brave face. As um, you know yourself, I'm sure if you go through something, you know, you're not going to... Yeah. You know, you pick yourself up and you show your best, you put your best foot forward. But mm. This is a serious illness and it needs focus. Yeah, well, it's dreadfully serious. Uh, there's uh, no other way of putting it. Uh, and whilst uh, you have recovered, uh, I'm sure you wouldn't go through all of that again and you'd do anything you could if you could turn the clock back to uh, avoid it. You said you think you're probably a better person for it, uh, but you are certainly a, a different person uh, from what I've been reading about you. You were a, a different young woman than the woman you are today, more interested in things like fashion and appearances and that sort of thing. Yeah, I was very vain by my own admission. I, maybe I was insecure and I just put a lot into trying to, I thought, you know, mm. my appearance would, you know, was what matters. Um, oh, well, there's nothing overnight. wrong with that either, but I uh, just mean that there was a, a, a sort of being... A shallowness to me, perhaps. Oh, well, <laughs> or, you yeah, know. Yeah. Mm. It's, but do you know what? It, it, I guess, look, I was a young girl and I just yeah. thought going to the gym every day, making sure my hair and makeup was perfect. And, mm. You know, th- that was... But one thing you learn at, at this is you, you can't control anything mm. in life. Yeah. And I could put so much work into the way I appeared and mm. overnight my head was shaved. I ha- I lost my eyelash. I was stripped back to being me as a person. And, mm. you know, you learn a lot about yourself when mm. you go through something like that. And it's a very lonely time in your life because you can have a hundred people su- supporting you and the mm. best of family and friends. You lay down in bed at night with your own thoughts. And I had a, a my son was six and, mm. um, the day um, before I started my chemotherapy and I remember sitting in there going my God six years ago I was holding a little newborn baby in my arms with our futures ahead of, ahead of us and I looked at that child before I went to that appointment mm. for my first chemo and I was like please God let me be here to see you make your communion mm. and do you know what I am and I was here for his confirmation and I was here for his first day when he started secondary school and you know it, it's probably Give me a better insight into people's struggles in life and more empathy. Mm. Do you know that way? Sometimes you can go along with your head in the yeah. clouds, and you know that's that's life. I don't think we're built. Yeah, well, it's the sort of news that brings their own mortality. You know, yeah. none of us want to face our own mortality. No, Why but a, a diagnosis like that brings you down to earth, uh, uh, and there's no doubt about that. Uh, and uh, I'm sure. 
uh, that a, a lot of people when they get a diagnosis like that wonder is this it or how long have I got uh, and we know that cancer doesn't discriminate and it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from or how wealthy you are or whatever the case may be uh, it'll take some people uh, I mean if you look at the Girls Aloud woman or David Bowie for all the money in the world the cancer took them uh, and that's just the reality of cancer uh, but you've come through it uh, and uh, you're here to tell that story to women uh, who should be checking themselves at least once a month, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, I always say on the first of every month, check yourself. Breast Cancer Ireland actually do a free um, app that people can download with a discreet monthly reminder and a tutorial on how to check your breasts as well. So that's, that's quite a useful tool that's out there. Mm. Uh, and of course... Uh, why you're with us today is uh, to make this uh, appeal uh, that uh, the breast check program uh, would be available to people when they reach 40 years of age. Yeah, I'd like to see women from 40 onwards um, being able to avail of breast check. Um, the density of your breasts changes when you get to 40, so it means mammograms are effective on uh, breasts 40 upwards. For girls who are younger, it, it, it just doesn't work the same. You know, it can, um, it can be inaccurate. So from 40 onwards, um, I think in Ireland far too often we look across the pond or we look elsewhere to see what they do. I would like to see Ireland lead the way in breast health and I think we're capable of it. And for you, you can go to the Beacon or um, wherever and pay for a mammogram, you know, from the age of 40. So you should be able to avail of this. Um, it's not a big ask and I think it would. I, I run a breast support um, page, as you said earlier on, and I could lose five to six girls a year um, to this illness. The amount of young girls who contact me in their 20s and 30s um, and 40s diagnosed with breast cancer is startling. Like, it's mm. it's um, unbelievable. And, well, you know... There's no doubt there's people listening to us now who've had a, a recent diagnosis or uh, have been diagnosed uh, as having breast cancer for some time. Tell us a, a little bit more about your support group because that really is what your page is. It's where people come together to talk uh, about their concerns and to offer advice. Yeah, like when I was going through breast cancer, I didn't. I I, I would love to have somebody to say, you know, to ask little questions to, like, is that pain normal or you know what moisturizer can mm. I use or this or that, you know, and. Somebody said to me, Kylie Mel went through breast cancer. I couldn't pick up the phone to her. I'm just an ordinary girl, right, who went through this. And people can pick up the phone. They can message me on Facebook mm. at any time. And I'm always available. The page, um, I give out information. I, I've spoken a bit about my own journey. You know, any questions people have. I also um, created a private group. Uh, there's about 2,000 people on it now. You answer a couple of questions to make sure the group is relevant to you. And... Um, the girls all support each other. So one day you could be newly diagnosed yeah. and you'd have loads of questions. Six months down the road, you're out there, you're out there getting over all your first, your first chemo, your first radiation and everything. And you could be the one giving support. And it's, it's, it's brilliant. And I always say to a newly diagnosed girl, in a year from now, you're going to be in a totally different place and you're going to be helping somebody else. And that's what happens with the group. And okay. it's, it's brilliant. Well, that's what you're doing. And I'm glad to, to hear you so well doing it. Uh, and uh, I'm sure that uh, there will be people who will be glad to find breast friends. Uh, yes. like best friends but breast friends uh, yes. uh, and I'm sure people will find that easily uh, and uh, I'm sure that uh, they'll be happy that they did uh, like a lot of things on social media of course uh, you can decide to talk or you can just read the things before you get to that stage so it's great in that sense Teresa listen thank you indeed for joining us on the programme much appreciate your time 
Thank you. It would be Thanks a million. That's uh, Fianna Fáil Councillor Teresa Costello, uh, a breast cancer survivor and founder of Breast Friends, which is that support page for people who have breast cancer and also for their family and their friends. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. There will be no further downgrading of Our Lady's Hospital in Navan. That's the message uh, that has come from government this week and it has been very clear. Damien English, Junior Minister in Local TD, said as much on the radio, as did Junior Health Minister Mary Butler in the Dáil this week. Despite that, a number of people went to Dublin yesterday to protest outside of uh, the Dáil against the potential downgrading of uh, the hospital. And indeed, 140 people attended a virtual meeting of the Save Navin Hospital campaign group. Let's uh, speak once again to Peter Tobin, AIM2 leader and chairperson of uh, that campaign group and Darren O'Rourke, Sinn Féin TD, uh, both TDs in Mead. And thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Peter Tobin, tell us uh, about uh, the hospital uh, campaign group meeting last night. Uh, what were people saying? What are the concerns? Yeah, so we had um, a great number of people. Um, we had representatives from four political parties and we had representatives from uh, the unions, from SIPTU especially, senior representatives from SIPTU there as well. We had staff from the hospital uh, in attendance too. Uh, so we were delighted with the numbers that attended. The context of this is that um, the government are looking to proceed with the closure of the A&E in Navan and that's without a shadow of a doubt. So we know that in 2020 before... COVID, they actually went public and said that the A&E is going to go to a 12-hour um, uh, uh, service. We also know from the topical issue that was uh, held in the Dáil during the week that the, the Minister did say that the A&E isn't going to close, but then later read out a statement from her department in saying that the A&E is going to be replaced. Um, we know that the unions met just in the last 24 hours with senior management in the Ireland East Group, and they, it was confirmed to the, uh, the unions that the A&E is going to be replaced. Um, so all of the information that we're getting is pointing exactly the one direction. Uh, so we know that this is a crisis um, beyond what we've seen in a long time in Meath, that the hospital is the most important piece of infrastructure that we have in the county, and that Drogheda uh, and uh, Blanchetown and other uh, hospitals cannot mm. deal with that. Uh, Was there a consensus last night that that is the reality? Because you said that there were people from four political parties. I take it uh, the government parties were represented. There, there, was a, there was a consensus amongst everybody at the meeting except for one person, and that was uh, Damien English, TD. Now, um, I don't want to misquote uh, or misrepresent Damien, but Damien pledged his support to the campaign and said he would do everything to help the campaign in its efforts to uh, raise um, this issue uh, uh, in its importance. But there were Fine Gael councillors there who felt otherwise with her? No, no. no okay. Damien was the only person that I saw oh. representing um, right, Gael. Okay. Podrick F. Simons was the only person representing Fianna Fáil that I could see, nice, harder okay. to see in these virtual meetings. But no. the outcome of the meeting was that we are going to take to the streets, and we're going to take to the streets in massive numbers. Um, and mm. a lot of the meeting was actually the, the practical uh, organisation and development of that. So we aim to get tens of thousands of leaflets out uh, over the next uh, number of weeks. Mm. Um, we have chosen the 16th of October at 1pm in Navan. It's still a provisional um, uh, uh, date, and the reason being is because I've been in contact with the Gardaí this morning just to make sure that we have permission to do this um, uh, on that date. And as we hope to get permission from the Gardaí before lunchtime, and at that stage we can then confirm it. 
Um, okay. But we're, the, we're, we'll the, be asking the 16th of October. Okay, there was a, a smaller protest. Obviously, that'll be a huge protest. A smaller protest uh, outside of Leinster House yesterday. People uh, exercised enough to travel that far. Darren O'Rourke, uh, I take it that in itself uh, speaks uh, to the level of concern that there is. No, it does, and 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 I think in in that you know um, uh, news of of uh, the impending cuts uh, came to light, you know, kind of this time last week or the middle of last week. So I, I think that was you know literally um, people coming together and, and trying to um, take some action uh, in 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 the quickest period uh, possible. And and of course the 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 gates of Leinster House uh, is is a useful place to do that because. Um, because that's where the decisions are made. So, so uh, it was good to see numbers there. Um, I know it's got some some national media attention and and uh, uh, p- political support as as well. Um, I think what's really important now. Um, is that you know on the back of the meeting last night that there is a, a coordinated effort? I think it's it's really important that you know we we do garner the support of uh, all political parties, um, and you know I want to hear from from Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael in relation to it. Obviously, they are are in a, a very particular position in well, that. Well, we have they are heard in from power. them. In fairness, they're saying it's not happening. Yeah, and and, and uh, I suppose the the real. Uh, proof will be in the in the Eden, you know. So I, I think it's very clear to people, um, and mm. you know, you've 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 done a very good job, Michael, in terms of looking at the real detail of it. Um, there is a complete contradiction there, of of course. So what we want, you know, we have heard from the the um, from from Minister English uh, in terms of his commitment to uh, the campaign mm. and to the hospital and to the effort. But at the same time, he acknowledges, and I, I think mm. I, I took it up uh, properly. That um, that there is a real threat to to the services there um, by the HSE. But and you're of course, you're, the HSE- you're with um, Peter Tobin on this uh, because despite the assurances, Peter Tobin is saying it is happening uh, and it's imminent. No. No, absolutely. And, and the point I would make is that there is almost a, a discrepancy there in, in what Minister English is saying. He, he says he, he's committed to it. There isn't a threat to it, but there is a threat to it from the HSE. Mm. And of course, who are the HSE accountable to but the Minister for Health? Uh, and we've seen, you know, it's literally in, in black and white there for people to see. Mm. Um, we've posted the the, mm. the text on social media. It says the, the, mm. the, the ED will be replaced by a 24-7 acute medical assessment unit and a 12-7 local injuries unit that is the plan um in black we, and white and okay. what we, we, need ha- we haven't heard from thomas byrne directly because the minister is in new york but uh, the minister had been texting uh, this program saying it's not happening either so that's the finna fall and finnegale so, position so, so will there so, be support for so, this protest so so what we need to see michael is it in black and white so we have it in black and white that there are changes we need to see it in black and white from the department from the minister mm. and also a black and white change to the small hospital framework document which mm. actually provides the basis for these changes but you're we to meet need, you Stephen, know, so you're to meet Stephen donnelly next week aren't you if the minister gives you that guarantee would that be the end of the matter as far as you're concerned well again this is another one of those uh things michael where and i know padder and myself and johnny gork have written on the back of our topical issue to the minister uh, uh requesting that we are included in a, mm. in a meeting but i certainly haven't heard anything back so okay. we are on the understanding from from ann rabbit and it was ann Rabbit rather than Mary, Mary Butler, Michael. My um, mm-hmm. uh, we, uh, um, we were on the understanding that there is a, a meeting to happen. Uh, it's with the with the government TDs, as as we're aware.
aware, yes. but I, I certainly haven't been invited to. Let me go back to Peter Tobin on that, because Anne Rabbit did uh, tell you that uh, Stephen Donnelly is to meet with Damien English and Thomas Byrne about this issue next week, and that she would ask uh, that the opposition TDs, yourself uh, and Darren O'Rourke and Johnny Gurka, in other words, uh, would be included. If that happens and you're given a guarantee, uh, would that satisfy you? Well, just, I, I want just maybe to, if, if we can be crystal clear with your listeners, just make sure that there's no confusion over this. The HSE documents, the small hospital framework documents, says that Navin Hospital A&E will be closed. The, um, and Rabbit read out a statement from the department which said that the A&E will be re- replaced. SIP2 met with the uh, R&D's group which said that the A&E will be replaced. I have a parliamentary question from the government which says the A&E will re- be replaced. There is no confusion over this. The, the, there is a sword right now hanging over the hospital in Navan and its imminence. With regards to the meeting with the minister, we would absolutely welcome, I think it would be, absol- be nonsense if the likes of Darren and, and, and myself weren't included in that meeting. Uh, it, they should be meeting with the Save Navan Hospital campaign. But okay. the, the proposal that was made last night by myself at the meeting was we want the threats against Navan Hospital to be removed. Uh, Rory Hanley, who is a GP uh, in the area, said that there's a gun being held to, the, to Navin Hospital at the moment. Okay. That's in the Save Navin Hospital. Uh, that's sorry. That's in the, 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 the small hospital framework document where it, it, uh, it says that okay. it is the strategy and the objective of the HSE to close it. I have to, I have to cut, okay. I have to cut you off there because we're over time, uh, but we're certainly not finished talking about this for the moment. That's clear. Uh, and the protests, as things stand, planned for the 16th of October. Thank you both indeed for joining us. Patrick Tobin of A2 and Sinn Féin's Darren O'Rourke. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Independent Senator Ronan Mullen is calling for a debate on the meaning of commemorations and is on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Senator Mullen, and thanks for joining us. Uh, why are you calling for such a debate? Well, I suppose I was responding to the uh, confusion that has arisen <clears throat> over our president's um, uh, forthcoming non-attendant, you might say, at the... Um, interdenominational service to take place in Armagh Cathedral um, on the 21st of October. And, um, well, I suppose it's very clear in terms of where public opinion is at that most people take the view uh, that the president shouldn't go. Um, But I see that really as a starting point of a conversation as as opposed to a full stop on it, because I think there's been an awful lot of confusion about it. And fundamentally... What what confusion has there been about it? Well... (laughs) You had the expert committee, right, on on the commemorations, saying that there should be uh, an academic conference uh, to mark uh, the partition of Ireland and the formation of Northern Ireland or the establishment of Northern Ireland. And yet you had one of that committee, Professor Dermot Ferriter, then basically saying the president was was right not to go to a ceremony it was actually had the exact same title and purpose, which was an event to mark uh, the, the partition. And the president himself, when he was explaining why he wasn't going, he said, you know, what began as a religious service mm. or reconciliation is now the celebrating and marking, I think, is the word used, he said. Do you not think that marking the establishment of Northern Ireland is a political event? Well, actually, no, because if you think about it, we, we mark and we commemorate 
and I mentioned this in the Shannon, the famine. And I don't think any of us thought when we were getting involved, to whatever extent we did in those events, that we were somehow celebrating the fact that people lost their lives. Um, the president has... No, we, comm- we, we, we commemorate uh, or mark uh, and remember the famine because people lost their lives. We exactly. don't... We don't commemorate or celebrate or mark or whichever word uh, you wish to use the establishment of Northern Ireland uh, because to many it would seem like an insult to our patriot dead. Yeah, well you see this is the point. Commemoration isn't the same as celebration and I think that's the fundamental confusion and and actually why I'm... And but there's many, there's, there's many people still who um, <laughs> don't recognise the establishment of Northern Ireland and would see it as unfinished business. Agreed. And even the word partition was a word that was chosen because that would be how the nationalists would see it. You know, partition is a bad thing. So it's interesting if you look at the history of this event that the religious leaders involved, and particularly on the, if you like, don't want to complain Catholicism and nationalism, but let's just say the Catholic religious leaders saw fairly quickly that Mm. it's not appropriate. And maybe all the religious leaders involved saw it's not appropriate that this would be in the British calendar uh, for the official political commemoration of Northern Ireland. And they moved fast on that when they saw that they hadn't taken off. And as I understand it, the use of the word partition would very much have come from, if you like, the Catholic Archbishop's side, because partition is how nationalists up north would see it. Mm. Um, so, so, in fact, the language was chosen, and the event, was, people were taking care to make sure that this wasn't seen to be political or marking, uh, or marking in a celebratory way. But it but, is, is it not? I, I mean, the establishment, uh, uh, the, the establishment of Northern Ireland is the extension of what was British rule, is it not? Agreed. Agreed. You see, this is this is where I think the confusion is, and this is to be. With, this is where I actually think the president got confused, and, and, I, and I'm kind of surprised because he he has given such leadership on the whole business. He used a great phrase called both ethical remembering, which is I suppose you re, you remember things that happened without glorifying violence. I would think would be one of the meanings one would, would draw from that. But the other line he had was narrative hospitality. And the idea of narrative hospitality was that in the telling of your story, you recognise the perspectives and the pain and the difference of opinion of the others. So I actually thought that where we had arrived in the whole business of commemorations was that what we weren't doing was celebrating a particular point of view on those things. That we were marking events of significance, which were of significance to us all, but which different people would have different views about. And I thought we were getting it really right from the 1916 ceremonies onward. Let's be honest, there was a very clear consciousness on the part of the political establishment down south that Sinn Féin weren't to be allowed to run away with the game, as it were. So this was all planned very carefully. And I would say that the Civil War commemorations which are coming will probably be done in a way that's very sensitive to both perspectives. So if, for example, there is the celebrate or the commemoration of a particular incident is during the Civil War, that incident will be seen by some people as an atrocity. It will be seen by other people as something that was necessary for the furtherance of their mm. point of view and that more. So the point about it is you can't have commemorations if you only include the things that everybody celebrates. Uh, the point of this whole business of reconciliation is to mark events, if you like, in a neutral way. Mm. And the unionists might have other events which you or I might be at which actually celebrate the establishment of the state of Northern Ireland. But together... But- 
uh, there will be events which say, yes, this is a fact of our history. This was an, a significant event that occurred. There are different perspectives about it. For some of us, it was a tragedy. For others, it was necessary, whatever. Mm. But the whole point of what we're trying to achieve on this island is a way of talking about things where we can both be at the same events, even though we've got different perspectives. And my view on this... But do you not think that the establishment of Northern Ireland is only part of the story? A story that hasn't been told and is far from concluded. And when that story does conclude... And there is a, a united Ireland, a, a reunited Ireland, that perhaps then we can mark that chapter in the story. Well, I suppose, of course, uh, we will mark that chapter of the story when that point comes. But it, it does come back to what do we mean by commemoration. And I, I, I think that... But what are we commemorating? Because the story hasn't finished. I mean, do you agree? Do you accept that? And do you agree with that? I do, yeah. You see, mm. my issue here isn't... The story hasn't finished, and you but, and as, part, but as part of that story, surely you have to uh, be part of the story and to take a position in relation to the sovereignty of Northern Ireland uh, as a state, uh, or to say, well, look, that's the situation until we get an agreement on this. But this isn't finished yet. Yeah, uh, but sure. So, but sure. Some of the people involved in that ceremony. Uh, in the north in Armagh, uh, some of the people very centrally involved are looking forward to a united Ireland in the fullness of time if that's where things go. That's what they want. So you're hardly suggesting that they're less patriotic simply because they want to commemorate an event because it was an event and it, was, it is a step in our history. Well, as if you said yourself at the outset, most of the my people... Point is that if we we're only going to commemorate the things in our history that were good, we wouldn't have commemorated the famine. But the famine is over uh, and uh, it, it is it is a, an event start to finish. Thank God it is over. <laughs> it's over in some parts of the world, yeah. I suppose. But 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 I, in, I don't well in this part of the world, it's over. But yeah, the, esta- the, the establishment of Northern Ireland is only part of a, a story which includes our patriot dead, uh, which is far from finished. Uh, and uh, I think, as you said at the outset yourself, most people uh, would believe that Michael D. Higgins the President of Ireland, has taken the right stance on this. I, I think I'd go further and say for an awful lot of people he's become a national hero. Yeah, I, 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 but as I said, my job uh, is, to, is to try and uh, let's, is to encourage um, a full thinking about these issues. And, and I, I don't think the meaning of commemoration is that you only commemorate things when they're fully over. Uh, we are involved in a journey on this island with people who have a very different outlook um, north, within the north and indeed within the south and between north and south. Mm. And my view on these things is that you have to be generous if you're going to make progress. You know, if we're talking about having a border poll, um, um, you know, in a few years' time, but we refuse at the same time to even acknowledge that as a fact of history, the partition of the country took place. And by the way, you can commemorate the partition of, of Ireland and regard it as a tragedy. That's my point. Mm. Commemoration is not the same as celebration. And I think that's where the president got confused, to be blunt about it. Can I just say something else you may be interested in? Because one of the things I wouldn't like people to think I'm criticizing the president. I'm taking a different view um, I, I, I think I would have taken a different view, but the, what, what, what the country, we now have a situation where the, the government is in a damned if it does or a damned if it doesn't position. Because if it, if it doesn't go now, 
that may be seen as, well, you know, we're only willing to talk about the bits of our history that we like. Mm. And if it does go, if they do go or are represented, they'll be seen to kind of somehow criticise or slap down the president. I, I don't think that's where any of us wanted to be in terms of commemoration events. Um, and I, I just think the whole thing is unfortunate. And, but I do want to stress that in saying that, I, mm. I'm making this point as a, I may be wrong. I know politicians don't often say that, but I may be wrong. But I don't think I'm any less patriotic or any less of, a, of an Irishman for thinking that it would actually have been okay to attend the ceremony where people who had a very different view of partition would be sitting beside me. Do you think that it would... I would have understood at all times that I wasn't celebrating the fact I was acknowledging it as a part of our history. Do you think that it would be acceptable to you uh, if the President of Ireland was to attend this ceremony in Armagh as a foreigner, uh, an invited guest from a different jurisdiction, as a subordinate to the Sovereign, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, uh, who is also due to attend? Well, I mean, I don't think anybody would ever suggest that that was how these things would take place. I mean, that has mm, not been my, my choreographing I, of events I, involving I, I, I don't our know. president and the Queen of England mm. in recent years, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, but, but do, I also, do, do you not see it? Do you not see that the, that the establishment of Northern Ireland means that uh, the people of Northern Ireland are the Queen's subjects? And the Queen will attend this. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think... And the President would come in as a subordinate to the Queen, as a foreigner. No, I think that your reading of that. I don't think anybody else would... I don't think that has occurred to, to most people, to be honest. I don't think, for example... I think the, it's as plain as day. I don't, think they can, I don't think the people who would describe themselves as nationalists, who would be involved... Um, in in in, uh, in in organizing that ceremony would see the president of Ireland as being um, somehow subordinate uh, to the queen at that event i i think there's there's a desire among people of goodwill but the queen is the queen of northern oh. ireland and it's a, an event to celebrate the establishment of northern ireland yeah but you're sure look at this was all this is all part of the Good Friday Agreement, don't forget. We, we mm. agreed, we, we recognised Northern Ireland. But it goes back to what the President said but, but about him I being the President of Ireland, uh, not yeah, the President of the Republic. And that was his mistake, because he gave the impression in the way he said it. I don't think he ever thought it, but he gave the impression mm. at one point that the, that the organisers of the ceremony but were not, referring to him as the President of the Republic. And what, then he clarified, what, what, he said, oh no, I meant the Unionists. But okay. was, it a, what, was it a mistake, or was he making the point that he, he couldn't go there as the president of a foreign country, the Republic, and not the president of all of Ireland. While he stood beside the Queen of Northern Ireland. No, 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 he acknowledged that he made an error because what he basically said is that they're referring to me as the president mm. of the Republic of Ireland. I'm the president of Ireland. I know. Is. He's the is that not the in message, in though, fairness, that you take? Just, just a second, Michael. Mm, yeah, in okay. fairness to the organisers of the ceremony, they always referred to him as the president of Ireland. Mm. Okay? He, was, he then clarified that he, he meant the Unionists. Mm. I don't give a damn what the Unionists say. It wasn't them that was organising the event. Mm. So I, I, I just think that we've, we've lost something here because in the Good Friday Agreement, we accepted 
that as a fact of history, we mm. may not like it, mm. and most of us would, would vote for a change, but, but we accept it as a fact of history that there could only be reconciliation if, for example, the people within the mm. jurisdiction of Northern Ireland voted for that agreement. We voted as an island, and we voted within, within the North. Okay, but can the people of... We've got to kind of get back to that inclusive approach, I think. Okay, can the people, uh, the nationalists, uh, uh, whatever... Um uh, category or um, term you want to apply to people, but can the nationalists uh, in Derry or in Belfast look to Michael D. Higgins as their president? I think they do. Mm. And I mean, I think that's the point, because they are entitled to citizenship of Ireland. Mm. Anybody in the North is entitled to citizenship of Ireland. I think, you see, we've... We, we, so, we've so, 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 so if Michael D. Higgins... But if Michael D. Higgins is the president of Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, how can he go to an event that marks the establishment of Northern Ireland as a separate jurisdiction? Because he's, well, because he would simply be acknowledging a fact of history that he and many others hope will, 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 will be adjusted in the fullness of time. But does you that know, not usurp his position as president? No, of course not. I think, Richard, didn't, didn't I just tell you that the, the, the expert group talking about commemorations were recommending an academic conference to mark partition and the formation mm. of Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. We, we had passed that point. That's my point. And it, 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 therefore, I think we've, we've now, as, we, 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 we've come so far we can afford to be generous. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And uh, I think generosity starts with recognising that commemorating something doesn't mean that I'm very happy about it, but we are marking certain facts that have a different significance to you than they might have to me. And that's going to be critical now when we're, when we're commemorating the events of the Civil War. Mm. Because there's people who will, be, will mark certain events that will say this was necessary or this was regrettable. And I, and I go further, by the way, and I'll say, I, I think you could look at this in terms of ad intra and ad extra, in terms of the, the internal commemoration side we've done fairly well on, partly because there was a realisation between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael that we've got to get this right, and um, and if we don't, others will benefit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but when you look at what happened, how it all fell apart in relation to the RIC commemoration and the Dublin Metropolitan Police, I mean, I would just say, like, if you were a patriotic Irishman that was doing your job as and you got shot in the course of your job and you weren't colluding with brutality with the blackened hands or anything like that but you were upholding law and order as you saw it within what had been some years earlier probably accepted by the majority of Irish people under the crown and you got shot your death is worth remembering you know mm. and, 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 and Republicans might say well it was a necessary act of war fine. It can still be commemorated. You know? Uh, And others would say this is a tragedy, it shouldn't have happened. Fine. It can still be commemorated. That is the key. And I think that's what the President needs to, with great respect to him, needs to rediscover. He has spoken about narrative hospitality. He has spoken about ethical remembering. I think we, we, we commemorate events even though some of us don't celebrate certain aspects of those events. Okay. That's the well, only way we can manage it. I, I'm sure there are some people who will uh, agree with what you're saying, Senator Mullen, and I, I'm sure there there's some people who will uh, agree with the position that President Higgins has uh, taken oh, as agreed. well. And of course, can uh, I just say, by the way, one yeah, thing, Michael? Yeah. Um, mm. The President rightly wrote to the uh, to the Dáil and Shannon there just before the summer break, um, saying that, look... Um, 
there's too much legislation coming mm. at the end of mm. the term and I need to be able to consider it. Mm. And that led to a kind of a process where the Dáil and the Shannon was reflecting uh, on the President. And I actually think he's he right to have made that. I mm. think it's a very sloppy way to do the legislative process. But when I brought this up the other day, <coughs> I made the point, look, the President isn't answerable to the Dáil or Shannon under the Constitution. But of course, that doesn't mean that a Senator or a TD can't comment. And I, I think you'll admit mm. that or agree that I'm commenting respect, I respect no, our absolutely, yeah, yeah. I just don't mm. think he's right on this mm. call he made. Mm. But I had to jump through the hoops and I was told several times that, I was actually told you can, by the, here look at the Senate, you can praise the President as much as you want but it's a procedure in this House that you can't criticise the President or you can't criticise or say anything that could be critical. And that sounded very Beijing to me and that will tell you like the the confusion that's around a whole lot of issues mm. in this country at the moment. We have to be able to talk it out. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I would have thought that we uh, lived in a, a country where there was free thinking and with that freedom of speech uh, without uh, being... Uh, derogatory towards people uh, as individuals, uh, but free thinking and uh, free speech are, are, are quite separate things, I, I think, or should be. Yeah. Uh, we leave it there for the moment, though. Thank you indeed. Uh, I'm sure, I as I say, people will agree with what you had to say and people will agree with what the President's position is, and uh, I'm sure some will let us know what they think, uh, as always. Uh, and thank you indeed, uh, as I say, for joining us on the programme this morning. That's Independent Senator Ronan Mullum to some of our listeners' thoughts uh, and what you've been saying to us. Maliki was in touch with us. He WhatsApped us today to say the government wants to buy electric cars to be more eco-friendly and kinder to the planet. But if these power cuts go ahead, how are people supposed to power electric cars and be able to get around on a daily basis? It's a very interesting point, Maliki. It's also very interesting as well uh, to think that one of the big things that we're being told about in terms of retrofitting houses and making our houses environmentally friendly by taking out oil heating and gas heating and all of that is that we'll have electric pumps in them. Where are we going to get the electricity to power the electric pumps which will be environmentally friendly if they're powered? Uh, Alfie in touch too saying that in a, a bid to help offset potential power cuts we should install a wind farm at Leinster House. There's enough wind and hot air coming out of that place to run the country for years. How in the name of God could anyone have confidence in anything that the government says he says. Thank you indeed Alfie uh, for your comment. I was waiting for that one by the way. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, a little bit uh, like Alfie earlier on, who was talking about all of uh, the hot air around uh, Leinster House uh, and what could be done with that. Uh, Pat in that boy was in touch with us. Uh, and Pat says if uh, there were wind turbines dotted around the grounds of Leinster House, there would be enough power generated to run Ireland and England together. Fergal and Hackball's Cross was in touch with us as well. Uh, Fergal uh, was uh, in touch on WhatsApp as well and he says to acknowledge, commemorate or celebrate the establishment of Northern Ireland none of them are acceptable no matter what word you put on it Uh, in other words he says he has a renewed respect for our president over the stance uh, that Michael D. Higgins uh, took in relation to that uh, celebration or commemoration uh, that is uh, to take place in Armagh this month Uh, somebody else in touch with us about that saying comparing the civil war and partition of the six counties is just stupid Ronan Mullen talks 
through his hat most of the time uh, and he thinks uh, that he, he's an authority on this. Uh, somebody else says, I think the Queen should stay in her own country. Uh, she's responsible for uh, a lot of blood that was spilt in our country. Uh, women, children and Irish patriots were murdered. Good on the president, not wanting to meet her. Why should he? Uh, that's uh, from Mull, I think it is, in Kells. Uh, thanks uh, for sharing your thoughts uh, with us, Mull, in Kells. Uh, now to uh, another issue, uh, or going back, actually, uh, to the issue of the power cuts and the idea that uh, we should be using renewable energy. Uh, there's sort of uh, two conflicting stories in one. We were listening to the Tonish to Leo Radker uh, tell us uh, many different things. <laughs> they were different things, weren't they? Uh, let's hear a, a little bit from Michael Healy Ray in uh, the doll yesterday and uh, what he had to say about renewable energy and power cuts. The government policies are to use this type of power and use it and use it, but at the same time, we're not doing anything to increase the availability of it. Also, we have to look at again the whole subject of the Shannon LNG project which was a priority of the previous government of 2016, but at the Greens' behest was dropped from the, the aspirations of this government. Uh, I believe that um, the minister, Eamon Ryan, recently stated that one of his favourite songs was Bruce Springsteen's Dancing in the Dark. Well, I think that the minister, the rest of the cabinet, but unfortunately the rest of the country could possibly be dancing in the dark if we do not see action and if common sense does not prevail and stop going on this crusade of talking about the future while ignoring the present needs of the people of this nation, the young people, the old people, the people who want to go to work and the people who want heat and comfort in their homes. Oh, what a feeling. He's such a rocker, that Michael. (laughs) Bruce Springsteen, eh? Dancing in the dark. Funny nonetheless. Uh, thought you'd enjoy that. Uh, Some more of uh, the comments coming to us uh, from uh, some uh, people this morning. uh, Somebody in touch uh, about the interview that uh, we did earlier on with uh, Teresa Costello, a Fianna cancer and survivor of breast cancer who runs the Best Breast Friends page, a support page uh, for people with breast cancer or who, who know people with breast cancer. She says, well done. This is Mary. She, Mary says, well done to Teresa in highlighting breast cancer awareness. Equally commendable is your colleague Sinead Brazel for highlighting HPV and cervical cancer two weeks ago and well done to all concerned. Thank you, Mary. Absolutely. Yeah. Sinead did uh, a marvellous piece on HPV uh, and indeed uh, took uh, away Uh, some of uh, the myths and unknowns uh, related to it. Um, Ronnie in touch saying we're encouraged to be self-sufficient and use solar energy uh, but we've no sun in the winter and we'll have to go nuclear. I'm not sure that's uh, the case. John Andrade says there's going to be power cuts and the government want us to buy electric cars. So do we get a a diesel generator (laughs) with the car to charge it if there is a power cut? John, don't, don't be so cynical. Please, please don't be so cynical. That's just beyond it. Uh, Speaking of being cynical, uh, there has been some cynicism about uh, the way uh, the politicians have been conducting themselves in the Dáil recently. Uh, And we heard some criticism on the programme yesterday, wasn't it, uh, about how questions were not being answered during leaders' questions. Uh, Because uh, instead politicians were talking about Sinn Féin when Sinn Féin were... Uh, asking questions whether there's merit in that complaint or or not it's another 
uh, complaint that was raised again yesterday. And despite all your lofty, ill-thought-out pronouncements about budgetary spending, the fact remains that your government has no plan to put a halt to these runaway rents. And that's the reality, Tanishu. Now, I know you believe that landlords should be prioritised above the, and their incomes are more important than renters being able to have a decent life. But I don't think even you, Tanishu, could deny the fact that renters are being fleeced and landlords are milking it based on these figures that we see the, from the RTB today. Right, that's uh, Piers Doherty being very critical of government, it has to be said, but asking uh, about the increases in rents. Just in relation to your comments earlier, Deputy, um, uh, what I believe is what I say, um, and what you said is not what I believe. And it's a, a classic tactic of populist politicians uh, to claim that their opponents believe something and then argue with it. Uh, to put words into somebody's mouth and then criticise them for it. It's a classic tactic of a populist politician. And I just want to put on the record uh, that that is what you're engaging in uh, as, as a party. Uh, you tell people what they believe, you tell people what they think, and then you tell them how awful they are. Um, that's rubbish, uh, and it's rubbish politics, and it's something you engage in all the time. OK, that punch from Leo Radker back uh, to Sinn Féin's Piers Doherty. Tanish, I'm not interested in your snipes against me, right? That doesn't interest me. For years we have been raising the issue that rent is out of control. And for years you have stood in that chair and gave different excuses. Now forget about what Sinn Féin is saying. Just listen to what the RTB is saying. Right, uh, and this is what the Tonish Leo Radger had to say in response to that. Thanks, thanks, Deputy. Uh, I'm, I'm not interested in your swipes against me either, but I am going to call out populism when I see it. And it's a classic tactic, a classic tactic of populist politicians from the far left and the far right and everything in between all around the world to display this tactic. You tell your opponents what they think, you tell your opponents what they believe, and then you tell them how awful they are uh, for, 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 for believing or thinking those things. But what you actually do is you fabricate quotes and you put words in people's mouths, and that's the classic tactic of a populist politician. You need to know you're that, you're, you're that, and people need to know that you're that. Okay, so just in case you've forgotten what this was about, uh, we're listening uh, to a parliamentary debate about uh, the soaring increase in the price of renting in this country, a real issue for so many people. Uh, Sinn Féin has been in office uh, in the past 20 years on this island longer than my party has, longer than Fianna Fáil has and longer than the, Green ha- the Greens have. You are an establishment party. You're a party of government on this island for most of the past 20 years. You increased the rents. You increased the rents. You increased the rents in Northern Ireland. Thank you, I, I know my I know Mary Lou asked this question yesterday, but with respect with for leaders' questions, the Tonishit did not answer any question. Yeah, well, I, I put it, forward the facts the from the Chair RTB. does not have the authority to direct the Tonishta or the Taoiseach to give any deputy the answer. It makes it makes a mockery out of leaders' sorry, questions well, if the Tonishta is going to involve sorry, himself in diversion every up, day. Deputy there you go. That's uh, just a, a flavour of how some of uh, the big issues uh, that are challenging uh, the people of uh, this country are being dealt with in our national parliament, uh, the Oireachtas. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, in its alternative health budget, Sinn Féin is proposing ending uh, the provision of private healthcare in public hospitals, and it says it will also make visiting a GP free of charge for everyone. Its spokesperson on health is David Cunnan, who joins us now. Good morning to you. Tell us more, please, if you would. Well, first of all, the overall package of measures in the budget this year is 1.4 billion, and. Obviously, one of the big challenges in healthcare is to make the big reforms, which 
is about removing private health care from public hospitals and also expanding free GP care. And all of this was promised in the Shalonta Care report that was published in 2017. The problem, Michael, is that the funding simply hasn't been made available to deliver on these reforms, but also we have, it would seem, institutional resistance. And we're seeing that now with high-profile resignations at the heart of the Shalonta Care team itself, the very people who are tasked with delivering it. So in terms of phasing private healthcare from public hospitals, we had two reports on this. We had the Shalonta Care report itself, and we also had the, the Butler report, which set out how this would be done. The cost would be $1.2 billion to do both measures. Uh, we don't believe it can be done, obviously, overnight or even over one term in government. It would obviously have to be something that's negotiated with hospital consultants and also with GPs through the, the IMO and the Irish Hospital Consultants Association. But this year in our budget, uh, we are providing $120 million of the $1.2 billion which would be necessary because we see these measures as a long-term strategy that can be done over two terms in government or over uh, 10 years. But we are absolutely committed to making it happen. And I think once you provide the funding, and as a minister, mm. you make it very clear this is what we're doing, and you get the Department of Health and the HSE to face in that direction and to deliver on the reforms, then I believe it, it can happen, and it must happen, because unless we untangle private medicine and private healthcare from the public system, we will always have high waiting lists where a percentage of those at the top will be treated very quickly. And then the remaining uh, people who are public patients who are on waiting lists will continue to wait longer and longer. It's and a, an awful lot of money. Uh, I mean, there's no doubting that uh, €120 million Euro is a, a lot of money by anybody's standards. And over 10 years, as you say, that uh, equates to €1.2 billion. Euro. Uh, but uh, in reality, is it a lot of money, given that uh, there was €4 billion extra available to the health budget last year because of COVID? Yes, and I suppose if you put into context uh, what was spent last year and the money that was found, not just for health, but for many other departments because of COVID, and what COVID has thought us is, first of all, our health system simply wasn't fit for purpose. But secondly, when the money was actually needed to fight uh, this virus, uh, which uh, we needed, it was found, uh, and it was found through borrowing, uh, and it was found through other measures as well. The €4 billion that was provided last year wasn't all for core health funding. About €2.2 billion of that is what was called one-off discretionary funding uh, or temporary funding for COVID-related measures such as testing and tracing and uh, PPE equipment and so on. The actual core additionality that was spent on health last year was about €1.2 billion. The rest was was, uh, money that had to be paid for for pay increases, increment increases, carryover measures and so on. So the actual core health funding was 1.2 billion but you're right in the sense that additional money was found to fight COVID and we now need to direct that money into delivering the big reforms in healthcare mm. so while we're focused obviously on those big reforms there are real challenges now Michael which is why uh, our measures also include uh, uh, 450 million for capital spends to ensure that we uh, can build the beds that are needed we're promising 828 new public beds which would include 600 acute beds but also additional beds on the community side, which are really necessary. Uh, we're also proposing 197 million euro measures in primary and community healthcare. That includes additional public health consultants, but also 
additional speech and language therapists, occupational therapists, which we know are needed for children with disabilities, providing services to mm. people in the community. Uh, we're proposing 113 million euro of a package of measures for mental health, which again would include moving to universal counselling and expanding uh, mental health services in camps and moving to a 24-7 crisis intervention service okay. as opposed to the 5-7 service. Okay. So it's a total package mm. of there's measures. There's an awful lot in that, yeah. Billion. Obviously, there's a, an awful lot in that. Uh, tell us how this would work in practice, this big reform that you're proposing. Uh, and it has to be said uh, that uh, you asked the top civil servant in the Department of Health uh, if it was plausible uh, to provide public care in public hospitals only and that private health care wouldn't be available in public hospitals and if it was plausible to make it free of charge to go to the GP to see your doctor universal GP care as it's called uh, and Robert Watts said yes it is plausible so what would happen uh, if you're sick and you need hospital care uh, how would that work if you don't have private health insurance uh, well first of all he not only said it was possible but he also said it was something that he would uh, put his own support behind and he believes that the only way that you can reduce waiting lists and create a fair health service is to remove private health care from public hospitals. And, and by the way, this was something that was signed up to by all parties. So if, if there are parties out there who signed up to something that they now no longer believe in, then they need to tell the public that because people are, are looking for these big reforms. Mm. How it would work in practice is, one, we have to move to public-only contracts for consultants. I met with the Irish Hospital Consultants Association only this week. I've said to them that if I was a future Minister for Health, that's what I will do. There can be no buckling on that issue. Uh, these contracts will be worth €250,000 a year. Yes, I would engage with them if there was flexibilities in relation to what they might do outside of their working hours or other flexibilities, because there are other issues that they raise with me in terms of a work-life balance, the stresses of working on the front line in healthcare, mm. but also additional capacity for surgical theatre space and diagnostics, which we also address in our budget. So I don't think I'm a million miles away from okay. where some of those groups are. So I think you can make that happen. Yeah, but how do you what pay for it? Uh, because, I mean, not, you get nothing for nothing. Uh, and how do you pay for it? I mean, at the moment, I suppose people are paying directly because they're paying insurance companies uh, who then pay the hospitals. And, and that's part of the problem with our health services. One, we have many people who are on packages at the lower end of, of mm. private health insurance who are actually not getting a huge benefit from it. Uh, and they're paying twice, sometimes three times. They're paying for private health mm. insurance. They pay their PRSI, but they also pay to a GP when they go mm. uh, to a GP. So we're not getting value for money as taxpayers. And a huge amount of the money that does go into private health care is obviously profit that's made from those providers, but also obviously from from the private system and I'm not opposed to private healthcare if that's what people want to do and there are private hospitals private hospitals will always remain and if people want to be treated in private hospitals and pay for it that's a matter for them But is it that we'd pay more PRSI or that we'd pay more in taxes or how would it be funded? Well obviously in our budget we'll set out Michael this year how Mm. we will fund the budget we will have some additional uh, taxation measures on those who earn over 140,000 euro okay. a year mm. we would retain the bank levy uh, that it was is going to come to an end this year which brings in about 300 million euro mm. there will be other measures as well so every single item that's in our budget whether it's in health or elsewhere has been costed okay and then peer authority will set out 
in detail next week uh, how that would be funded. In other words, instead of the insurance companies uh, paying the hospital bills, uh, the hospitals would have a, a budget uh, and they wouldn't be charging anybody. It would come out of government funding, in other words. Uh, so I think that the scale of this, Michael, is actually overstated. The, the, the total cost or the total revenue mm. that's generated uh, by public hospitals from the private sector is about €600 million. Euro. So it isn't a huge undertaking to mm. pl- replace that over a 10-year time period. Uh, there are other additional costs mm. as well. So the total cost of removing private healthcare from public hospitals is about €700 million, euro, okay. which is why we've allocated mm. €70 million euro in this year's budget. Okay, but in, in, the the co- in, the, in the country that we euro. live in, though, the problem is that people... Uh, think that it's uh, wishful thinking, that it's fanciful. Uh, but so just trying to explain uh, what your proposal is. Uh, and in the same way, if you go to the GP, I mean, because some people will tell you they don't remember the last time they went to the doctor or other people are going to the doctor every other week. But who pays the doctor if you don't have to pay the doctor yourself? Well, obviously, the state would pay for it, which is what we do now for, for all children up to six years of age. So we have made some steps uh, and, and taken some steps in terms of moving towards universal GP care and, and being paid for by the state. Mm. Unfortunately, it's been way too slow. So it's the same with private uh, spend in public hospitals. You replace that private money with public money. And then private money, if there is private money in healthcare, should be used for private medicine and public money should be used for public medicine and public healthcare. But just to pick up on one point you mm. made, Michael, mm. about people's apathy, and whether or not these big changes can happen, uh, and whether or not there's a public appetite for it. I've done a lot of interviews over Mm. the last number of days, and it comes up time and again. Mm. The reason why people don't believe that healthcare can be changed is, one, we've had successive governments which haven't done it, and two, it's the scale of the challenge, and I accept that. Mm. As someone who wants to be a future Minister for Health, I'm looking at high wait times of 900,000 people Mm. on a waiting list, 190,000 of those waiting for over 18 months, Yes, we'll have challenges getting GPs to sign up to this. Yes, there'll be challenges with consultants. Mm. But what you need to do, which is why I met with Robert Watt, who's mm. the head of the Department of Health, and with Paul Reid, the mm. head of the HSE, you have to get the system to buy into it. You have to get the entire healthcare system with the political system facing in the same direction and then driving on with the reforms. And I didn't have a lot of time mm. for the PDs and I didn't have a lot of time for what uh, all of what Mary Harney did in healthcare. One of the things she did write was the National Cancer Strategy, and she did it by being focused, uh, by ha- having people in charge that would deliver the reforms, mm. take mm. on vested interests, and it happened. And that's the type yeah. of approach and from a different perspective, ideologically, you that know, I would take. The, t- the thing is, is that I, I'm not arguing with you. I, I am saying to you that there are people listening to us who think, how, how, how could you manage that? It's impossible. Because of the world that we're living in and that we've always lived in in this country, uh, that seems uh, just too far-fetched. Uh, but it is... The essence of what is Slanchicare, and all of the politicians believe it can be achieved. Uh, not just yourself, David Cullinan, not just your party, Sinn Féin, but all of the politicians have agreed to this thing that they call Slanchicare. People here uh, talk about Slanchicare and they wonder what it's all about, that there's some political argument about the health service. But that's what it's uh, about, in essence, that there would be a one-tier system. It wouldn't be that you'd be seen quicker or uh, treated quicker if you've got private health insurance, uh, that you'd be able to go to hospital uh, uh, if uh, you pay, whether you pay PRSI or not, uh, and you'd be able to go to your doctor, you wouldn't be charged, uh, and so on. But the problem now is, uh, as the latest uh, person to resign uh, from the Slauncher Care uh, 
reform plan, Professor Anthony O'Connor says or claims, is that there will be some iteration of Sláinte Care. Eventually that will emerge, but he says it'll bear little or no relation to what was originally proposed, and that is being bulldozed, and that's why he's decided to step down from something that he finds unrecognisable in relation to the original plan. And I would share many of his concerns in relation to the current government's plan and trajectory. And in fact, I, I've reached out to Anthony and want to meet him as soon as possible to hear of his experience. But when you talk about reforms in healthcare being far-fetched, I think what's far-fetched is actually the system that we have. And imagine if we lived in a state where we had a single-tier health service, where people were treated on the basis of need, where it wasn't the top 20% of people who were on waiting lists were seen within a couple of weeks or a couple of months, and then everybody else was rotating around a list that could take years for for people to be seen. And you said, we're going to upend that and change it and create a two-tier system uh, where we now will treat people on the basis of how much they earn and wealth as opposed to health needs. I think that would be seen as far-fetched. So we need, as a society, to decide whether or not we're going to do this and then get behind people like Anthony, like Laura McGahey, and those in the political system and those who work in the healthcare system who actually want to create a health service that works because the alternative is that we continue on with a broken two-tier system with health waiting lists getting bigger, people waiting longer and the unfairness of of all of that getting worse and worse. And, and, you know, I don't know how many times over your long time in, in public broadcasting you've discussed issues in healthcare and how it doesn't work and the impact it has on patients. So we either have to make a decision, we're going to do it, in which case we then go and do it. Will there be challenges? Absolutely. And you have to take on vested interests and you have to work out, and I've said this yesterday, working out what you want to do is possibly the easy part. Working out how you do it is a bit more difficult because there will be people who who will resist that change. And that's what's happening in Care. But we also, it seems we don't have a minister who's taking personal responsibility. In the door last week, the Minister for Health said he's coming up with a new waiting list plan and it will be headed by Robert Watt, uh, the Secretary General of the Department, who obviously has a role, but the plan needs to be headed up by the Minister. He needs to be the driver of the change. He needs to take responsibility, not just for a waiting list plan, but for the big reforms in healthcare. And if I was in his shoes and if I was the Minister for Health, I would have Paul Reid, Robert Watt, all of the key people across the Department and the HSE in before me to say this is unacceptable, the resignations are unacceptable, there can be and there will be no institutional pushback. We're driving on with these reforms, we're making it happen and you would then have to have the support of the entire cabinet and the Taoiseach then to drive on the reforms. If, if, If they wanted to do it, it would be done, which maybe says something about the current government's attitude at its, at its core to Shalom to Care, and that's what would concern me. But I can only speak for what I would do if I was Minister for Health and what Sinn Féin would do if we were in government. OK, we leave it there. Thank you indeed, David Cullinan. David Cullinan, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health, brings our programme to its conclusion for this week. I hope you have a good weekend. Thanks to Maggie McGuire for researching Chris Murray in the control tower. I'm Michael, and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. 
Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code presson25 at checkout for 25% off impress manicure and presson falsies. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.